Welcome to the Next Level Youth Podcast. Here you will find sermons and content from Next Level Youth. We meet every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. at the Palace of Praise Church. We hope this content challenges and encourages you in your walk of faith. Let's grow in Christ together. Matthew 5-7, through 7, we've talked about it before and I preached uh, a lot out of it, I think last year. But Matthew 5-7 through 7 is known as, anybody have any idea? You know, Anna. The Beatitudes are in there. It's the Sermon on the Mount. The most famous sermon, the most well-known sermon, the most quoted sermon of all time, Jesus preaches straight heat for a long time in Matthew 5 through 7, and he preaches some of the most strict, uh, and, you'll, and I hope to enlighten you on that a little bit, some of the most enlightening, some of the most revolutionary material, theology, truth, however you want to put it in these three chapters. And I'm going to go here for a few moments. Matthew 5, 38 through 45, he says some things that have never been said before, some things that have never been written down before, some different ways to live. He is literally speaking earth-shattering things in these verses. Matthew 5, 38 through 45. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who, you would, who would borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you, so you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He says, no more. That's not the way which I'm calling you to live. When someone wrongs you, you don't seek vengeance, but instead, you let it go. You don't retaliate against those who wrong you. Then he goes even further in verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what people do, right? We love the people that are nice to us. We despise those who wrong us. That's the way of the world, is it not? And it makes a lot of sense. But Jesus says, no, I'm calling you higher. I'm calling you to love your enemy, love your enemy, and pray for those who persecute you. Anybody in here have the spiritual gift of praying for your enemies? You just pray for your enemies every day. Anybody in here have that gift? Oh, wow. All right. None of you. I didn't raise my hand either, as you can tell. Anyway. Now, this might not be that earth-shattering to you because maybe you've read this, maybe you've heard this, 
But I hope you understand, when Jesus spoke these words for the first time, some people in this crowd had lived this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, love who you love, hate who you hate. That's the way they had lived. So when they hear Jesus start to speak so countercultural to them, thoughts like, that doesn't sound right. I can imagine, like, I know some of y'all think I'm crazy, and you might whisper something, and you're like, I don't know if you know what you're talking about. But, like, I think that was probably going on. I wasn't there. But I would imagine people like, this guy is off his rocker. Where did they get this loony at, and why are we here? Because Jesus is literally speaking things that just totally flip their world upside down. And then he doesn't back off. As we read on, as he preaches on, in Matthew 6, 9 through 15, he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We like that a lot, right? Nobody likes that. I like that a lot. Anyway, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, I need stuff. I need food. I need sustenance, whatever sustenance is. But then it says, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And most of the time we stop there and say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, right? But then what does verse 14 say? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. For followers of Jesus, he makes it and writes it plain. Forgiveness is more than a good idea. It's more than a rule of thumb. It's a way of life. It is an actual command. If you don't forgive those who wrong you, I'm not going to forgive you. How's that setting with your stomach right now? Praying for people who have wronged you, forgiving people who have cut you in deep places is not easy. And it doesn't come natural. It just doesn't. So how? The question is how? How do I follow such a command? It's plain as day here and in other passages. Forgive, lest you be forgiven. So how? And that is the question I want to at least begin to answer here tonight, is what do we do when people let us down? What do we do when people wrong us, when people betray us, when people cause us an immense amount of pain? What do we do? And to be completely transparent with you, I, I, there's a sermon by Rich Wilkerson Jr., and it, he entitled his, When People Let You Down. And you can go find that on YouTube. And I kind of use some of his material in his outline. So if you want to hear how he puts it, he's not as good looking as I am, but he is a better preacher. So anyway, take that how you want it. Anyway, he's a very good looking man. I was being facetious. Anyway, and that's supposed to be funny. I forget some of y'all, so uh, pause. So I forget some of y'all don't know me personally when I say things like that. And so I apologize in advance. Uh, and for what I just said. But let's, let's keep moving on. Um, I started thinking about if I have ever preached a, a sermon just on this, and I have 
rake my brain um, as much as I can, talk to my wife, and I'm like, do you remember, babe? Like, I, I haven't been doing this this long. Eight years isn't that long of a time. And uh, anyway, I don't remember ever just taking a full sermon to talk about this. And, and there are a few reasons why. Um, one is because this hits really close to home for me. Because this is a struggle I have had. Um, and I continue to work through at times. I have had a problem with forgiving people because in my life, specifically from ages 13 to 26 or so, for a long span of my life, my family, friends, people close to me have hurt me in deep ways. And I'm not going to get into all that. That's not important. But I'm trying to help you understand and be transparent that this is not easy for me and that when I stand here, I speak from experience. And I'll give you another reason, I think, um, that I've struggled with forgiveness <clears throat> at the end. But this is what I know about unforgiveness. This is what I know because of God's word. This is what I know because of my experience. This is what I know because of other people's experiences. Is that when people hurt me, when people betrayed me, what I did was I, I held on to it. I grabbed it. I held on to it. And I wouldn't let it go. And when I did that, when I, when I held on to unforgiveness... It transformed itself into bitterness. And bitterness is like an infection. And when you have bitterness enter into your inner being, it starts to spread like a virus. And it causes damage and it causes issues that you can't quite understand. It honestly becomes a big jumbled up mess. And I let that infection bleed into all of me. And what it led me to was a place of loneliness, a place where I didn't trust anybody. I specifically remember long stints of my life where my goal was to confuse everyone about who I was and what I was about, for them to not understand when I was being serious or when I was being funny. That was my goal. That was my hard exterior. And I wouldn't let anybody in. Eventually what that hard exterior did is it led me to loneliness, is it led me to depression. And depression is a word that gets thrown around too loosely in my opinion, although I am not a doctor. It is a word thrown around too loosely nowadays and it's stupidly almost worn like a badge of honor which I do not understand, but I legitimately found myself in a very dark, lonely place. And I will not describe any more than that. But I was in a place of isolation, and the devil is the one who led me to that place. I let him, excuse me, lead me to that place. And the devil isolated me, just like a lion would isolate its prey. And the reason that the devil did that was because his aim was to kill me. Not literally kill me, perhaps, but might as well have killed me. To kill my assignment, to kill my purpose, 
to kill my love for people and God. That was his assignment. And to be honest with you, it almost worked. It almost worked. But I stand here tonight as a testament to the mercy and the goodness of God that God has helped me to forgive as he has forgiven me. He has healed me and continues to heal me of the effects of years of this pain. He continues to help me to forgive those things I've already let go of, those things that come up, though, those offenses come back and get in your face. And he's helped me put those things to death. And he's helped me to continue to forgive people when they hurt me once again. Because it's going to keep happening. People are going to hurt you. People are going to hurt you. So, once again, the question is, we know we should forgive so far, right? That's plain. We know unforgiveness causes a lot of pain and grief. We'll talk a little more about it through the night. So how do we do that? How do we forgive? Here's the big idea. This is how you forgive. We forgive by running to and relying on the one who understands and giving our offense to the one who did and can do something about it. I'll say it again. We run to and rely on the one who understands and we give our offense to the one who did and can do something about it. And you might say, I don't know what you mean, or you might think that sounds simple. Well, it's not as simple as it may seem, but at the same time, it truly is. Hebrews, this whole idea comes from Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. This is what it says. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, <coughs> Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those three verses pack a punch and they say a lot. And we oftentimes focus on that Jesus was tempted with sex and money and gluttony just like we are. And he was and he can sympathize with that. But that was not all that these verses are pertaining to. I want you to understand tonight that Jesus understands. Jesus understands exactly what you've been through and what has happened to you because he has experienced it for himself. We do not have a God who considered that he shouldn't come down. Or we do not have a God who just stayed in heaven and stayed off afar, but we have a God who came to earth and suffered as we do and experienced the effects of sin as we do. He experienced the effects of living, living in a fallen world. He experienced the effects of dealing with imperfect people and being betrayed and hurt by those very people with whom, which whom he came to save. 
That's our God. That's Jesus. And running to Him is the only thing. And running to Him over and over and over and over and over and over again. And understanding He's the only one who really understands. That is the only thing that worked for me. I tried a lot of other things and a lot of other ways, and he is the only way. Jesus can sympathize. He understands. Run to the one who understands what you're going through. If anyone was ever wronged that has ever lived, it was Jesus. You think you've been wronged. You think people treated you bad. Look at the life of Jesus. And that's what we're going to go through for a few moments. Jesus was hurt, betrayed, wounded, wronged, let down by his family. His mom and dad, let's read it, Luke 2, 43 through 46. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Jesus' parents lost him for three days. He was 12 years old. Now, this is Jesus, but what kind of parents lose their kid for 24 hours? They have no idea he's gone. They assume, like, I hope, there are a lot of crappy parents out there. I hope that this is not you. You don't have to be this kind of parent. Not that Mary and Joseph are horrible people, but I'll move on. Not, second thing, his whole family, this is what happened. Mark 3, go read the whole chapter. I know all of you will go read the whole chapter. I know you will. Mark 3, 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus is doing all kinds of powerful things and causing a ruckus. His family comes and pulls him from the crowd and says, this guy, Jesus, he's out of his mind. His whole family. John 7, 5. His brothers, Jesus had several brothers, for not even... His brothers believed in him. Jesus knows what it's like for your family to believe or to not believe in you at all, to have no confidence in faith and who you are and who God's called you to be. Jesus knows what that's like to be betrayed by the people that you are supposed to feel the safest with, the people that you should be able to be the most transparent with, the people that should believe in you. Jesus knows what that's like. Jesus was also not just betrayed by his family, he was betrayed by his friends. In the most anguish that Jesus ever experienced, even more than the anguish he experienced in the wilderness as he fasted for 40 days and prayed and was led to the wilderness, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane about to go to the cross and he takes his homeboys, Peter, James, and John, the inner, his inner circle, his inner group. Who has the inner circle in this place? Anybody? You got one, two, three guys you can call on or girls. 
gals. What do you guys call each other? Gal? I'm just kidding. Friends. It's a revolutionary term. Thank you for your help. This is what it says in Matthew 14, 32 through 42. Slap your neighbor. Thank you. 42 through 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John began, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground, prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from me. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came to them the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, for the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus in anguish. Worst spot he's ever been in. Says, hey, I need you. I need you. Please pray for me. He goes and comes back three times, finds his homies are dead asleep. Dead asleep. Jesus knows what it's like when you're in a bad spot and you got the weight in the world on your shoulders and there's nobody there to help or listen. He knows. And this is the mo- these are the moments that his friends truly began to betray him. The next verse is Judas comes, and one of the disciples, he comes and portrays Jesus. And he betrayed Jesus for what? For status and for 30 flipping pieces of silver. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend for no reason. For someone to put a price on your friendship, Jesus knows what that's all about. Read on. Peter denies him further on. Then Jesus rises from the dead, and those three people that were closest to him didn't even believe he rose from the dead. Anyway, that's for another day. Moving on quickly. Jesus knows what it's like to have foes. He knows what it's like to have enemies. As Jesus walked the earth, read about his life, Jesus had enemies. He had people that directly opposed him. People of the world opposed him. Go read John 15, 18 through 20. I'm not going to read it right now, but Jesus is like, they hate me, they're going to hate you. The, The world in which we live does not like what Jesus Christ stands for and who he is. They definitely don't like his sexual conduct and code. Have you experienced otherwise? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Four of you do. But Jesus also knows what it's like to receive hate from the church. Some of y'all are the most hurt in here from people who hurt you in the church. People that are supposed to love you and care about you. The very people that opposed Jesus the most were the church, Pharisees and Sadducees. And these men devoted their life (coughs) to God and his way. That's what they did. But these very men who should have followed and worshipped him, rejected him and hated him, 
and continually were seeking ways to destroy him, to kill him, to arrest him over and over and over again. And they were the ones that actually were the ones who developed a plan to get a Jesus arrested in the first place. Jesus also knows what it's like, last thing, to be hurt by people in authority. And I really struggled with this. But Jesus is about to go to the cross. He goes before Pilate, the governor. And Pilate has the ability. He has it. I understand it was Jesus' plan to go to the cross. It was God's plan. But Pilate has the ability to say, no, I'm not going to let you kill Jesus. But what does he do? What does he do? He pleases people. He doesn't do the right thing that he knows is right. And he lets Jesus be crucified. Some of people in this place, you've been betrayed and hurt by people in positions of authorities, teachers, principals that should stand up for you and have your back. Different positions of authority, maybe even police, maybe even lawyers and judges. You've been betrayed by people that are supposed to have your best interest in mind. And I want to let you know something. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. Not only does Jesus able to sympathize with us, but this is what I, I love this. I love this. He can fully sympathize with us, but Jesus doesn't count that as enough. God doesn't count that as enough. Psalm 56, 8. You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Can you just leave that up there? All those tears you've cried. Not one has been forgotten. There's not one tear you've cried that God doesn't know why you cried it and doesn't know why you were crying. God collects our tears because he cares about what hurts us. He cares about what burdens us. He cares. And he writes these things down in a book. They matter to him. How beautiful is that? You got any friends like that? Heck no, you don't. It's not possible. It's not possible. This invitation to know God is far better than you understand. He is so good. Not only can Jesus sympathize with us, not only does God, or excuse me, knowing this is true, knowing that God can sympathize with us, Jesus can sympathize with us, excuse me, that God collects our tears, He cares about where we're at and what we've been through. Our response should be, verse 16 of Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Back to how do we forgive those who wrong us? We run to and rely on the one who understands and when we run to him, we give our offense 
We give our pain. We give our trauma. We give our hurt. We give it to the one who did and can do something with it. He already did something about it, and he can do something with it. When we are wronged by people, our response should be to draw near to God. To run into His presence, to shed tears, to tell Him what happened to you. Does He know what happened? Yes. Share your burden. Share your pain. Tell God how you feel. You do not have to go in, in God's, into God's presence all prim and proper with all the right language, with the perfect KJV tone and sound. You don't have to do any of that. You come in transparent, real, honest, truthful. And you tell him where you're at. And he listens to you. And he wraps you up in his grace and his mercy and his love. And then our response must be, he doesn't just ask you to come in and share your burden. He asks you to come in and lay it down. Sharing is just part of laying it down. He says, that offense doesn't belong to you anymore. Look at me. That offense you've been carrying around for years doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Him. It's not yours to carry. He'll carry it for you. He took care of it already for you. Release it. Release it. Give it to God and trust Him with it. Romans 12, 19. Love and never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance and justice are God's job. And He is the only one qualified to do it. You are not qualified. Because what you really want is justice for everyone else and mercy for yourself. God is perfectly just. He can be trusted. Give it to Him. Our job is not vengeance and justice. Our job is forgiveness. A couple quotes for you that I think pack a lot of weight and I won't unpack them. I hope that you can just grasp them. Rich Wilkerson Jr. said this. It'll be on the screen, hopefully. Forgiveness doesn't mean that hurt never happened. It simply means it no longer controls me. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the hurt never happened. It simply means that it no longer controls me. I like this. Theologian Louis B. Smeedes, and I'm probably saying that wrong. I tried to say it right. said this. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. I stand here as someone who can testify 
that these statements are more than true. And that if you hold on to unforgiveness, it will control your life. God wants you to, you're being offended in these formidable years in your life, you're being hurt, and God doesn't want you to carry that into your late teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. God wants to heal you and set you free from it now. I told you towards the beginning that there was a reason I had a hard time forgiving. And one of those reasons, and the root, one of the biggest roots of my unforgiveness was pride. Pride. Pride will cause you to overlook your own faults and magnify everyone else's. That's what it'll do. And that's exactly what happened to me. Is I started looking at what happened to me and saying things and believing things like I would never do something like that to someone else. I would never wrong someone like that. Thinking that I would never find someone worthy of being my friend. So I would wear unforgiveness like a bulletproof vest. Trying to keep everyone out. But unforgiveness isn't protection. It's just pride. It's just pride. And forgiveness takes humility. And if you'll go to God's presence, He will humble you. God despises pride. Proverbs 8.13, All who fear the Lord will hate evil, therefore I hate pride. And arrogance, corruption, and perverse speech. Another version says, I hate pride. There's another version, and it says, I hate pride. And then there's a couple more versions, and then they say, Hey, I hate pride. It's pretty plain where God stands on pride. But if you'll get into his presence, he will humble you. He will show you your faults. He will remind you that you have two wronged people. All you people harboring unforgiveness, who have you hurt? Have you owned up to that? I'm sure you got that spiritual gift too. He'll show you where you've been wronging him. He'll remind you that you need people. He'll remind you of when people got it right. When you get so down and full of unforgiveness, everyone is out to get you. Everyone's out to wrong you, and when someone does something loving and caring, you can't even see it because you've got this wall up. God will show you that not everybody's out to get you. 
He will show you that you don't belong in isolation. And he will empower and enable you to forgive. I've said it a hundred times, and I'll say it again. There's nothing that God asks you to do that he will not empower you to do. Nothing. If God asks you to do it, he'll give you the power, he'll give you the tools, he'll give you the way to do it, and he is the way. We are commanded to forgive. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easy. So to forgive, we must rely and run to the one who understands and give our offense to the one who can and did do something with it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you for tuning in. God bless.